Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Joel, good afternoon. Howdy, Rabbi Eric. How are you? I'm good. Should I call you Reverend Joel? I don't care. I just always call okay. you Rabbi Eric, not for, you know, to stroke your ego, but so that the <laughs> listeners remember you are well, a if rabbi. If you really want to stroke my ego, you know, Senior Rabbi Linder, the Senior Rabbi of George. I'm completely kidding. <laughs> um, I'm neither senior nor uh elevated to that level of esteem. Do you but have subtitles on rabbi in, in your practice of Judaism? Well, yes, but they're not theologically based. They're, they're um, practically based. So in the same way that people have job titles that are sometimes very fancy, um, in congregations that have more than one rabbi, for example, um, the head rabbi is often designated senior rabbi. Um, there's sometimes, so at my first job, I was the assistant rabbi. I always like to joke, not the assistant to the rabbi, but the assistant rabbi. It's a office reference. Um, and then sometimes after a rabbi finishes his or her first few years and then continues, they'll be called the associate rabbi, which often isn't any, there is no difference other than the title, but it does signify that you've been there longer, that you have some more responsibilities. It doesn't necessarily change, you know, a benefits package or anything like that. Um, but it, but it does allude to a kind of stability within the congregation. So yeah, we have all those gradations. And that's similar in churches where there are sometimes senior pastors or lead pastors, and then there are times where it's the associate pastor. And speaking of church, Joel, um, I feel like the last time we spoke, uh, I did a lot of talking, and I think it's your turn today. <laughs> All righty. So, uh, yeah, so uh, hopefully our, our listeners know that uh, our last episode, uh, I talked about my journey uh, to become uh, not only a uh, Reformed Jew in by choice and by lifestyle, uh, but a rabbi. And uh, I hope that some people found that interesting. Um, I certainly do, but that's because it's my life. But uh, hopefully, uh, regardless of background, uh, you find these stories from both of us interesting on how we decided from a personal basis, a experiential and certainly a religious and spiritual to become a clergy. And so, Joel, uh, I'd love to hear your story of how you went, as you've alluded to, from being this uh, very scientifically minded engineer to being the uh, reverend that I have the delight of being friends and, and partners with. We, we do tell this story uh, several times as you're going through your seminary education or just when you're practicing. There are people in the congregations you serve who want it, to hear it. And, and, and I guess I have the short, medium, and longer version. We'll lean toward the shorter and let, let you pull out of me anything else you're missing. You should have told me to do that last time. I did, but you didn't listen. <laughs> Fair. Uh, so I think now, as I'm I'm 51, and as I think back, there are certain critical path points, uh, critical points on the path that become more clear to me. They were 
they were the moments where something was turning me. Uh, one is the death of my father. I was six and a half years old. My dad died by suicide. And, and the church where my mom was going and I would go with her did not do that very well. They did not talk about that very well. They did not um, understand it. The theology that they had was was pretty cold about those who uh, commit suicide based off a real fast, rough interpretation of uh, one line of Scripture where it says the only unforgivable sin is a sin against the Holy Spirit and the interpretation that that is uh, defined as suicide. So uh, as a six-year-old boy at my father's funeral, I realized, well, Either the God the church talks about isn't worthy of worship, or the church doesn't know the God they're talking about. And and you thought that as a six-year-old? There was, I knew there was discord between the two. Got it. So yep. church, God, not in agreement, right? If church is right about God, screw God. I'm out. There's <laughs> a disconnect. If the church is wrong about God, then why would I do church? because they don't know what they're talking about. And um, thankfully, mom was equally hurt by church um, and never went back. Even she died 20-some-odd years ago now, and she she never went back to church after that. Um, Talked about herself as a a believer, but never went back. Um, So I go through my my early years, my high school years. I go to college. I meet my current wife, Jill, in college. Uh, born and raised Presbyterian, and she has she and I start dating, and our dates include Michelob Light and Hershey bars and deep theological conversations, <laughs> and that was that was college for for me, and it was awesome. I argued with her from a very logical uh, headspace, and she replied back to me some ancient words that spoke of a very different God. And I asked her where she learned that. And she said, in church. And I was like, how the heck did you learn good words about God in church? The only thing I ever heard were terrible words. Um, so in college, I, I didn't participate in college groups or anything, but I did go to big church. I went to a, a downtown church where there were a bunch of older people. And I was the weird college student who showed up occasionally. Um, and I was baptized at that church and as a senior in, in college. And when Jill and I got married the next summer and moved to Montgomery, Alabama, we became founding members of a little startup church. And we were the weird young couple with no kids who go to church anyway, even though they don't have kids. Uh, all of that was, was my attempt to redeem God and church. Uh, to allow other people to save the image of God and the practice of church in my head and heart. Uh, So from that 1990 until uh, the late 2000s, I was just a church dude um, who would occasionally ask stupid questions like, have we paid yet? Meaning, have we given our tithe to the church? Uh, and I would go to Sunday school classes and weird things. And uh, and I don't know why I went, but we had a few kids, and church was a place where they took care of my kids for me. And they let me be an adult and have a grown-up conversation. And 
hang out with my wife without having to be responsible for the little ones for a while. <laughs> that was a major gift when another community loves your kids and takes care of them for you. You will... You are and will be finding that out as soon as COVID is over with that new. Yeah, COVID. I was going to say, why is Aaron home with us right now for two weeks <laughs> while he can't be in daycare? Right just now? not there yet. Now, the, so I, the truth is, I even now, I mean, so many congregants have reached out and brought, even yesterday, right now is the a Jewish holiday of trees, which we're not going to get into. And a congregant dropped off a bag of things for Aaron and things. So totally resonate with what you're saying there. It's beautiful to see other people love your kids. Uh, and to give you a break from being 24-7 responsible for them um, and to have adult conversation with you. It's just, that was beautiful. Uh, late 90s, the next critical path points, I switched jobs several times from an engineer into marketing and into sales with two or three different companies, and I was traveling a lot to New York, uh, riding the PATH train to the Twin Towers, getting out uh, at the station below the Twin Towers and walking to the big banks that I sold credit cards and credit card systems to when 9-11 hit. And that that changed a lot of things for a, a lot of people. Um, for me, it's it made me push my new God language to the next level. Um, so I found myself having drinks with a Jewish guy from J.P. Morgan Chase and an atheist from MasterCard somewhere in uh, early 2002. And the the Jewish guy, you know, he was still processing what had happened at 9-11 and with me. Uh, as we were trying to figure out if we would ever close this deal now with a crushed economy. And and he said, you know, if more people talked, to, if more Christians talked about God the way you do, I wouldn't be as afraid of them. And uh, I realized, wow, okay, something's happening. Um, and a, a few years before that, in 2000, my mom had died and my family were going to have a Baptist preacher, Southern Baptist preacher, do her funeral. And that reminded me too much of the one who did my dad's. So I did my mom's funeral back in 2000 wow. and preached it, designed it and preached it and prayed. And and with those two moments, my mom's funeral and that Jewish buddy of mine telling me that my Christian language about God feels safe to him, I... I decided, okay, here we go, and went home and told Jill, and and I had to drop it all and go to seminary. So I did. Um, one other critical guy in that process was my my pastor in Greenville, South Carolina. He preached at Reverend Alan, Doctor Alan McSween, and he he preached a sermon one time that said, "Sometimes the call of God simply comes as silence, and don't hear the silence as." silence. It is merely God's promise and assurance that no matter what you choose, God will be with you. And that gave me a ton of confidence to drop everything and go for it. So that's that's how I got to seminary, and that's how I um, became a, a practicing Presbyterian pastor. Beautiful. And um, 
I'm sure my list, our listeners, excuse me, uh, it is not my podcast. <laughs> uh, our listeners, thank you for you know sharing those vulnerabilities, especially with regard to to some tough memories. I've had the honor of hearing you speak about your dad's death um, not too long ago. I think it was probably just before COVID. If although my sense of time is all off, um, uh, we in the context of gun control. Um, and you invited me and another friend of ours to kind of witness you. And, and one of your sons was there also. And I, I remember that as a very powerful experience. I was grateful to hear you speak of that, both in the context of why legislation of gun control is so important, but it, it having such a weighted theological and moral uh, heaviness and, and meaning for you. Um, your story reminds me of three words that one of my favorite teachers, Dr. Uh, and Rabbi Larry Hoffman, uh, taught us at seminary all the time, which is one of those things that sounds obvious. And the more that I think about it, the deeper and more meaningful it gets, which is theology is autobiography. <laughs> and that none of us can separate what we feel or don't feel about God from what has happened to us in our own lives or what we've done in our own lives. And um, that's why I think I asked this question last time and now I'm going to answer it. I think that that's one of the reasons why people of all stripes find this question fascinating. Why did you become clergy w without regard to denomination is because it says something in your story someone can learn about not only who you are, but of your theology. So obviously to you, um, talking about God in a comforting way, in a way that helps and not in that kind of, uh, stop me if I'm wrong here, in that judgmental kind of brick wall way, um, led you in some ways not away from church, but toward it as an element of kind of healing it. And and one more sentence, and then uh, please keep talking, is the, it also just reminds me of the power that we have for good and bad, the, of people having a bad experience with a clergy member, often at a life cycle event when emotions are incredibly tender. Um, and we have such power. I mean, the power we have when someone is sick or dying to that for a family member to remember how we acted, even if it was a 10 minute phone call. I mean, it, it often is not, it's longer, but it, it can make such a difference to how that family feels about church, temple, religion, God, all of those things. Um, one question I have, and I have this question for myself is, do you think, and th this is my word, so tell me what your word is, like, were you destined to be clergy? In other words, if, if these things didn't happen, would you still have found a different way around it to become uh, a minister? So the my name, Joel, right? Uh, it, it, you know it. <laughs> There's a prophet, a Hebrew prophet by that name. Uh, the, the simplest translation of it is Yahweh is Lord, Yahweh is God. Um, I hope it's not offensive to you if I say that that first word to some of the, I, I, I understand when I'm with my Jewish brothers and sisters, it's often replaced with a deny or some other phrase. So I'll be careful, but, um, uh, or just. I'm offended at other things you do, but not that okay, in the great. slightest. <laughs> uh, and apparently in my genealogy, there was a preacher by that name, Joel. Um, 
And mom considered me a, a kind of a miracle baby. I have a brother that's 20 years older, a sister that's 18 years older, another brother that's was an an accident in, in his own way, nine years older, and then me, born when my mom was almost 40. So it, uh, it's, I was the unexpected one in a lot of ways. But I don't think any of that has anything to do with me being destined for clergy. I, I just think that the pieces and parts and bits and experiences and and questions they combine to leave that as an option. And it's an option that by, for whatever reason or force or chance, I decided to took and couldn't help but take. But uh, I, even now, I realize I had choices. And if I had made different choices, it doesn't make me any less of a child of God. And it doesn't make my life any less of a theological statement about who I believe God is and what God is doing. That your reference to the the gun issue is because on on that day when Dad committed suicide, I was mom and I were there. He and mom were arguing. We were in the same room, and and he just he broke, and you could see him shatter. Uh, you could see him grieve. You could you could see his repentance and his pain, and he just needed it to end. And he had a gun within three feet of him so he he grabbed it and used it and uh, I, I will forever have a stance against weaponry um, and I find that because of my experience with the radical convenience that dad had to make a very mm. quick decision that hurt himself and all of us and uh, not irredeemable but irreversible ways um, and I find myself following this Jesus who, darn it, right? He, he hated violence. He received it when it happened to him without returning it. And, and he followed the prophets who imagined one day all the weapons and clothes of war with all their bloodstains would be burned or washed with lily white and all the swords would be plowshares one day and we wouldn't make war anymore Uh, prayerfully that day is coming and to follow somebody who who does that it sounds it sounds easy at first but then you get into it and you realize oh my gosh war and violence and fighting it's such a natural part of this broken human condition uh, I, I wish I could follow. I wish I could be religious in a more naive way. Sometimes, I, I <laughs> yes, all right. There, yes, there was a season where you're religious, and it's like, man, God's so awesome. And and then you go through this rattling, and you learn more about God, and you go, whoa, God's so different than the way we talk about God, and then in the kind of quick, shortcutty, drive-through <laughs> faith world. And then you start practicing the more complicated God, and you realize, oh, no, the world kind of resists and hates when we invite them deeper into the more difficult God. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think about this whenever I talk about Noah's Ark, especially with adults. I talk about that specifically because it's such, in some ways it's such a children's story, and there's beautiful children's books and all the colors and the sea and the ark. and 
if you come to think about it, God destroys the entire world without giving them a chance to repent, without giving them a chance to, to become righteous. And I mean, it's an incredibly violent story and it is, it can teach that might makes right. And it, it's probably, I mean, there's other things to say about it, of course, but it shows that a lot of stories we learn as kids is kind of these, you know, again, I'll use the same word naive, you know, well, God does did this and everything God does is wonderful. And look at the rainbow at the end. We concentrate on the rainbow, but not the devastation, right? Um, yeah, I have that wish too sometimes, but that's, in some ways, that's where um, that's what I that's where I find religion is most interesting. Is not the right word, but powerful and palpable is that it, it is finding those difficulties and really wrestling with them. I mean, you know this, but Yisrael means to wrestle with God, and that's that's who we are as Jews. And I think anyone who takes religion seriously has to do that. I want to go back to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you were talking about your childhood and you know your that that pastor when you were six, did, maybe not when you were six, but when you were a little older, did you have a sense of the diversity of Christian beliefs in terms of denominations and sects and those sorts of things, or did you just know what you were and that you didn't want to be that? So my earliest years, like zero to ten, were in a a suburb west of Atlanta, uh, but outside the perimeter. So kind of what you would think of as not rural, but not suburb, um, kind of the poorer suburb, uh, you know, of it around Atlanta. And then we moved farther west uh, from there, almost <laughs> just 45 minutes from the Alabama line. So in those first 10 years of my life, Christianity was Southern Baptist right? If there was just one view of it. Now, Mama had been a primitive Baptist. Uh, I have a painting of her primitive Baptist church in my home. Um, by that, I mean two entrance doors, one on the right, one on the left. Men enter on the one of those doors. Women enter on the other of those doors, and they have annual foot washing services. So old school uh, Baptist Christian practices. Um, when I got to uh, eighth grade, we moved to Florida, and I started going to a different school. And there, my best friends were uh, Filipino Catholic and Korean Presbyterian and uh, Indian and then some Christian uh, and some nothings <laughs> like me. Uh, so, and my girlfriend for a lot of that time was a Filipino Christian, and and that was the first time I kind of realized, oh, I'm I'm the outsider. There's a lot of different ways Christians practice Christianity, and a lot of them look at me as not good enough for them. And when I when I felt that, I I thought, okay, so it's not just the Georgia Southern style church that has kind of a, an insider arrogance to it. There's something about the trap of the beauty of Christianity that becomes a trap into creating insiders and outsiders. I I better be careful whenever I see it. 
And and that that is so true in Judaism too. Even in um, rabbinic Judaism, you know, fifteen hundred years ago when the rabbis were writing the Talmud, uh, you know, for all of its kind of sexism and uh, heteronormative assumptions. Uh, they got some things right. So one one of those is with regard to conversion. There's this beautiful line that I'll translate where it says, when someone converts to Judaism, don't embarrass them by reminding them of the pork that might be still stuck between their teeth. And so it, it, it I mean, it's such a, it's such a vivid image, um, but it's about not embarrassing someone. And it, it also, the uh, the ideal of that is that when someone converts to Judaism, they are not someone who converted. They are Jewish. You don't refer to them as a convert. I mean, you, you may in terms of telling a story about them, but they're not less than. They, you know, someone who converts to Judaism, it, according to traditional law, I mean, of course, reform, but traditional halakha, Jewish law, can become a rabbi, can chant from the Torah, all of those things. Um but I, I think Judaism has this insider-outsider thing, too. I mean, there's all of these jokes, as I know is true for Christianity, where, you know, uh, a Reformed Jew and a conservative Jew and an Orthodox Jew go on the golf course. And this one says that, you know, to show kind of who's better than who. And, um, you know, I think theologically speaking, certainly in Judaism, each denomination, I think, will in some ways argue that their way isn't necessarily the right way, but is the hardest way, is the most intellectually um, uh, filled with an integrity way of practicing Judaism. You know, Orthodox Judaism will basically say, well, God wrote it. It's the law. It doesn't matter what I want to do. I have to do it. So look at the self, and I'm, of course, paraphrasing, look at the self-sacrifice that I do all of these things. I keep kosher. I don't drive on Shabbat. I, not because I want to, but God wants me to. Reformed Jew will say, well, look at how hard I am. And I have to know every law and then figure out how it blends or doesn't blend with my own sense of morality and where, where modern culture is and where my synagogue is and what my rabbi thinks. And then I have to make my own decision. And not only that, but I could change my decision a year from now when I learn something else. And then conservative Judaism is in the middle with an emphasis on history. And so, again, long story short, famous last words, it's like we all have that insider edge that we think what we belong to is the right way, even if we don't profess it out loud, right? Like I'm never, like I don't believe, nor am I going to say that if you're not a Reformed Jew, you're not celebrating religion correctly. And by no means do I believe that. Um, and yet, as a Reformed Jew, let alone a Reformed rabbi, I, it, it's, I can't but help raise up Reformed Judaism, right? And so I, there, there's just a tension there. A big tension for all religious people, regardless of their faith. If, if it's not the right way, then why am I bothering to do it? And if it is the right way, then why would I tolerate others not doing it the same? And if it's only right but right for me, then we're in this relativism mode where it's like you could do i mean there's a lot of trouble there also yes dangerous potholes to to drive through that's the whole well my truth <laughs> right but to teach people that look the reason we do faith this way is for these reasons we aren't god so we can't know all the things but the things that we do know that we've agreed on and that we're going to lift up as the higher priorities, they determine how we practice faith this way. And we're going to put some rituals, 
some special days. We're going to put some markers around that to remind each other and to hold each other accountable to that set of things. It doesn't make the day itself the holy thing. I mean, Jesus said something like that when they were ragging him for plucking grain on the Sabbath or teaching on the Sabbath or healing on the Sabbath. He said, you idiots. He said that right after he said, do not insult other people. He basically goes, you idiots. It's not that um, humans were made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for humans. To, as a gift to us to remind us, God, take a break, rest, Wait, remember so, me. Um, Achara, the poet Achara Am didn't say that first? Jesus said that first? <laughs> I don't know. No, there's, there's a, a very famous poet? saying. There's a very, very famous saying most Jews, if they, you know, as adults or, edu- you know, if you've taken a college class, you'll hear the, you'll hear this line, Shabbat wasn't created for us. We were created for Shabbat. Or I'm sorry. The other way around, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, the other way around. It, it was created. I'm going to find uh, the quote and put it in the in the show notes, since clearly I can't get it right. The rabbi. <laughs> well, while you're at it, look it up in Matthew as well. <laughs> All these things just to remind us that our the reason that we do faith is to become more like the great faithful community that God intended to create and did create in the first place, that we wander from, that we resist, that we reject as foolish or naive or weak, right? God's great community is full of vulnerable people who are in relationship with one another, provide for one another, leave, leave no one behind, care for one another all the way to the end, and are happy to sacrifice for for our strangers, even for those we might perceive as enemies, in, in order to give them hope and healing. And if they, I mean, Jesus kind of threatens the, the Pharisees at one point, um, oh, oh, you think you know the law. Okay, well, if you have two coats, give one away to somebody who doesn't even have one. If you have two meals, give one away to somebody who doesn't even have one. And his his push on that is to say, yeah, yeah, you, you've got the law written down on words, and everything you do is supposedly to protect that law. I don't really care what's on the paper. I care what you practice. Go put it into, into practice, and then I'll know that, yep. that you are children and da- you know, brothers and sisters, uh, sons and daughters of Abraham. And that imagination, I don't perceive to be an edict only into Judaism. Um, it's it's one from the the source of Judaism itself to all of us. You know that's one of the reasons I can hang out with you and and do this with you. Um, I feel like you're my daddy. <laughs> <laughs> so I I did completely destroy the quote. So the the beautiful quote is more than Jews have kept Shabbat. Shabbat has kept the Jews. Oh, that's a good – yes, I like that. That's different. It's yeah. a twist, but it, it's really good. Uh, right, because the idea by keeping Shabbat means following the laws of Shabbat. And so it, he's putting um, – you know, Hasidic Judaism is very much personal-based, that the mitzvot, the laws exist for our own betterment, even if we don't understand that betterment, which is an important and a crucial uh, part to, uh, of that. Um, but anyway – 
Yeah, so I'm getting ready to celebrate and keep Shabbat tomorrow night. Yes, you are. You ready? We have a get. Yeah, I'm actually excited about tomorrow night's service. We have a um, a very good friend of mine is a semi-professional uh, song leader and uh, cantorial soloist. Um, doesn't live here in Athens, but with the with with all of us doing Zoom services, it's easy uh, to have her be our guest uh, musician and vocalist tomorrow night. So yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. What's going on at church for you on Sunday? Uh, well, it's our annual meeting of the congregation and corporation, which we always do to take care of some business. But before that, in worship, uh, it's our fourth week in a six-week series that um, Caitlin and I titled Making Change. And what were the six steps Jesus took to make change? And step one, find a mentor. John the Baptist. Step two, prepare for resistance when he went into the wilderness and, and got his act together <laughs> to face the resistance. He would uh, to make a strategy for how he would respond to the resistance he would face. Um, and then week three, last week was gather a team. He calls his disciples together. This week four is from Luke 6, and he basically lays out the rules for how they're going to operate. I, I think of it as the mission, vision, and values of the organization that he's growing. Um, and I, I think the title of it's going to be Lay the Foundation, because he uses this cool metaphor at the end. You know, nobody foolishly builds their house on sand. They always pour a solid foundation and build their house on that. But Reverend Caitlin is preaching, because I'm I'm working more on the annual report this week than I am a sermon. Right. So, and what I want to know what five and six are. Oh, we're not there yet. You'll just have to wait. Oh. <laughs> so I, there's a, a rabbi, and I, I'm forgetting his name, but um, retired now. He was a rabbi of a, a very uh, res- respected congregation in New York City, and he he wrote down these kind of his own wisdom from being a rabbi for, you know, however many dozens of years. And and I remember him speaking to our um, one of our classes in rabbinical school. And one thing he said, I will always remember, he said, you can get anything you want done. So talking about being a change agent and doing change, anything you want done, but two things have to be true. One, you have to be incredibly patient. And two, you have to be willing not to get the credit for it. And I have found, you know, 15 years is not a long career by any stretch, but I have found that to be true. That, you know, kind of on an infinite time scale, um, things that change that you want can get done. But it it often uh, isn't with your name, which is fine. Um, But more importantly, sometimes is it's not necessarily on your timeline either. Perfect. And speaking of timeline... uh, I think that's a good uh, coda for today's episode. Please tweet me if you see an Xbox uh, out there. I'm I'm trying, Joel. You got... I, I send you these texts, but then it takes you ten minutes to look at them. Talk about the urgency of now. I mean, you gotta you gotta get on it. Well, now I know I need to buy it from GameStop because of uh, how their trade in stocks are going <laughs> wacky. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder, 
and all the religion fans out there. We thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to religionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.